Hello, everyone. Good evening. Welcome back. This is night one of the Herrick District Library's Summer Author Series, and it looks a little different from last year, um, but it's 2020, so we should all be expecting just a little bit different this year. <laughs> Obviously, we're, we're doing things uh, remotely now. Um, I am Jason. I'm going to be your host again this year uh, with the Raven Podcast, and this is a literary podcast where I talk to authors about their work and why they created that work, and we generally just have a really good time. And it's all possible because of Abby Stroop, our facilitator and the director of the summer reading program. Thank you, Abby, uh, Thank at the you, Herrick Jason. District Library, <laughs> because Abby is amazing. Uh, and this show is also made possible by Go Indie Now, uh, who is an online network that promotes indie artists around the world, and they're absolutely fantastic. You can check out Go Indie Now on Facebook at their website, goindynow.com, or on YouTube, where they have a ton of different shows. Uh, this show is also supported by author Rebecca Jonesy, and uh, my favorite of hers is the Mavs Doll series where the Fae know that everyone is unique and all love is valid, something very important to remember. And also I wanna give a shout out to one of my guests' favorite bookstores, Unabridged Books in, uh, in Chicago, and their website is unabridgedbookstore.com. And from what I understand, Jonathan, you actually go in and, and sign books now and again there? Absolutely, if anybody tonight wants a signed copy, I wish I could be there in Holland with you to sign copies and say hello, but uh, you'll have to settle for a signed copy by mail and I'll you tell me what you want signed on there. I'll hop over to Unabridged Books and they'll send it to you. Fantastic. Well, and this, this is a perfect time then to introduce my guest, <laughs> Mr. Jonathan Ike. How are you tonight, Jonathan? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. It is, it, it's kind of sweltering here in, uh, in Michigan at the moment. I think we're 90 degrees, which for us is very, very hot. Uh, but I'm in a, in a very cool basement at the moment, so it's not too bad. That's good. I may get a little sweaty here because I turned off the air conditioning <laughs> to talk to you. So if I start sweating, you'll know that uh, I'm really nervous from your tough questions, and it's 90 <laughs> degrees here, too. Well, I like it that we kind of have the same the same hairstyle going on here, yeah, too. So it's like cools we're, we're cools coordinated. Off. <laughs> so, John, tell us a little bit about yourself, if you would, please. Well, I'm here in Chicago with my family, and I am coming to you because uh, I've written some books. My most recent book was a biography of Muhammad Ali. I've also written biographies of Lou Gehrig, Al Capone, Jackie Robinson. Um, I wrote a book about the invention of the birth control pill, which is not exactly a biography, really sort of a biography of the uh, inventors and the, the people who came up with the idea for the birth control pill. But I write nonfiction. I'm a former journalist. I worked for the Wall Street Journal I started writing books and uh, before that I worked for Chicago Magazine and some newspapers um, New Orleans and Dallas so I um, you know cut my teeth in the news business and sort of gradually transitioned to books and I've been doing these books now for the last more than 15 years almost 20 years now and uh, I have my first children's book coming out in the fall um, some pigtails which I can tell tell you more about as we get going um, and I'm working on a big biography Martin Luther King Jr. at the same time. So uh, keep it busy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like you you kind of know what you're doing. <laughs> uh, it doesn't always feel that way, but I, uh, I'm putting on a good, I'm putting on a good act if I uh, 
at times it feels like I'm just trying to get away with something, but it's working. <laughs> I was reading through your uh, your book titles and, and the, the one about the birth of the pill, I, I loved it, it was how four crusaders reinvented sex and launched a revolution. And it, 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 it's like it, it takes this, and I hope this doesn't sound offensive, but you know, talking about the birth of the pill doesn't seem like it's going to be the most exciting thing. But then when you, when you add these crusaders that launched a revolution, it's like, wow, this actually sounds like it's going to be freaking awesome. I um, love so that story so much. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, I tell people it's like a sports story because it's underdogs doing something that should be impossible. You know, the birth, the birth of the pill uh, comes when, at a time when birth control is still illegal in the United States. So you can't get a government grant to, to, to fund this research. You can't get a university or a drug company to get behind it. So these three radicals, um, sparked by Margaret Sanger, who has the idea, undertake this thing knowing that they could all go to jail for doing it. And even if they succeed, probably no one's going to allow this to ever be sold in the United States. And they do it anyway, and they change the world. So I just fell in love with these characters, and that's what made me want to tell their story. And uh, to me, it's as exciting as any sports story that I, that I wrote. That's pretty cool. I, I like it. And that's, that's going to be moving up towards the, the top of my nonfiction list. Uh, no, uh, it, it sounds like something that you could, you could really make a documentary about, too. Like, I would, I would watch that in my, my binging. Yeah, and we're, we're talking about it. There's some talk about a, a TV series based on it that we're trying to get going. But it definitely, the characters are, are really dramatic, and it's really cinematic in many ways. That's awesome. Well, and, and just looking at these, and, and this is probably a question you hear a lot, because you, you've got Muhammad Ali, uh, you've got Lou Gehrig, uh, Jackie Robinson, um, you know, three major, major sports figures. Then you've got uh, Al Capone on here and the birth of the pill. So it, it seems like though you, you have the, the three sports centered ones that you're, they really are quite varied. You know, how do you, how do you go about choosing these? Because writing a, a nonfiction book, especially a biography, is not a small feat. You know, I, I, I write fiction novels and that's something that I, I might be able to crank out in a year, but some right. of these, you know, I would assume are years of research that go into them, right? Yeah, it's at least two or three years per book, sometimes more. And you've got to choose your subjects really carefully or you're going to get really sick of these, of these characters. And um, you've got to pick something that you're passionate about, something that you can find new material so that you are adding to the conversation. You know, um, there have been a lot of books about Muhammad Ali, for example, but nobody had done the big biography. Nobody had looked back 50 years later on what inspired him to join the Nation of Islam and break with Malcolm X and refuse to fight in Vietnam. It had been a while since anybody had done a big look back. And so in each book, you really have to go through the process. Um, is there something new to say? Is it important? Will people be interested in this? And can I add something to the dialogue? Are they relevant today? Is there something newsworthy about what I'm, what I'm writing? And, and each one is a very different story about how I get to this. Um, to this subject, but um, I've been lucky. I haven't picked any any stinkers where I've gotten sick of it along the way. You know, oh, hang on a minute. I'm going to turn on my air conditioning because I am getting sweaty. Here. Hang on. Don't go anywhere. I hope that noise won't be too bad, but I have to, or else I'm going to be drenched by the time we get done. Thanks. <laughs> well, you you actually uh, you produced a, a podcast um, about writing Ali a life, right? Yeah, I did. It's called uh, Chasing Ali, and it basically tells the stories of this four-year journey, not only to write Ali's story, but to try to meet him as well, and getting to know his family, hanging out with his wives, tracking down Don King, 
you know, meeting George Foreman. Um, it was the most fun I ever had on a book because Ali's contemporaries were still alive. You know, three out of his four wives were still alive. So I was able to really, you know, immerse myself in his world in a way that you can't with Al Capone. With Al Capone, I found maybe three or four people who had actually met him, but they were okay. tiny, you know, they were little kids at the time. They didn't really have a lot to say. So with Ali, I was really able to, to dive into his universe and to get to know his people and the stories by far the most fun I ever had researching a book. And plus boxing is just a crazy sport. So the people, the characters are, are insane. They're, they're just so much fun. Um, you know, I, I don't want to spoil it in anything, but were you, were you able to, to meet Muhammad Ali? No, it's, a, it's, 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 it's not a spoiler. Um, and in fact, it's not in the book at all. So you'd have to listen to the podcast to hear the story. So, I won't take too long, but I'll give you the medium length version of the answer to that story. I spent three or four years trying to meet him. And he was in bad health the last few years of his life. So a couple of times I went to public events where he was supposed to be, and he didn't show up because he wasn't well. And then um, I would sometimes, I met his wife a couple of times at these events and I told her about the book I was working on. I said that you know I wanted this to be the best book ever written about Ali and that I really wanted it to be definitive. And, and she said, well, you should come meet him. Um, and I said, I'd love to, can I come over right now? And, you know, there would always be some problem. He was, like I said, he wasn't always well. Um, but at one point, finally, she agreed to let me come for a visit. I said, no interview, I'm not going to bring a tape recorder, no cameras. I just want to tell him that I'm working on this book and I want to meet him and I want to look him in the eye and just shake his hand. Uh, I flew out to Phoenix. I took my daughter with me. It was five at the time, um, because Ali loved kids and I thought it would be nice just to make it you know, more comfortable. And we got there and we went to Ali's house and we spent two hours in his house and he never came out of his rooming. He was too sick that day to see us. So by now I was beginning to lose hope that I would ever go and see him. But uh, a few months later, Monty, his wife called me and said he was feeling better. He was gonna be in Louisville for a public event. And I, I drove down there and, and got to meet him at this uh, event before the dinner began. and, and you know, he couldn't speak anymore. He couldn't do interviews at all. And, and I, I wasn't even sure whether he knew I was there because he was just sort of a blank slate. But I, I leaned in and I put my hand on his arm and I whispered in his ear and I introduced myself and I said, I'm writing this book about you and it's such an honor and I'm doing my best to, to get your story right. And I just want to know if there's anything you want to say. And he didn't answer. So it, I felt like he was, you know, Ali never made it easy on people. He loved to give people a hard time. And I felt like he was basically saying, you know, it's your job. You got to figure out how to tell the story. I'm not going to do it for you. Um, but it was, it was really moving for me just to, just to be there with him. And, and his wife afterwards said that he wanted me to come and read him the book when it was finished. Um, but he passed away before I finished and uh, I didn't get that chance. I don't know what I would have done. I would have been so nervous oh, reading it to him. You gave, you gave me, you gave me chills there for a second. That was uh you know, thinking about actually being able to, to go and, and read to him. That's, that's well, it's a, dangerous. Kind of you know, I've only written about dead people before. Um, to write about somebody who's alive is really complicated. Do you give him a chance to respond to every single thing that's in the book? Um, do you want that? You know, is it even possible to write the book and tell the story in a compelling way if the subject is going to respond to every accusation, every allegation or every characterization and say 
no, you didn't get it right. That's not what I was thinking. That's not what I was feeling right. You open up so many cans of worms that you may never be able to tell the story. So I don't know. I mean, I would have if asked, I would have gone and met with him and I would have read him the story, but I, I would have probably prefaced it by saying, I will take into consideration any suggestions you might have, but the final decision on what goes in the book is mine. And it's, you know, I have to take the responsibility for how we tell this story and you don't get the final word, which would have been a really hard thing to say to Muhammad Ali, but yeah. I would have had to. Well, because he was, in this, not, it might not be right, but I, I get the feeling that he was a little bit of a, a hero to you. He was a hero to me. You know, I, I was born in 64, so by the time he, was, he made his comeback, I was old enough to, to know about it. And, you know, these fights with Joe Frazier and George Foreman, they were the biggest sports events on earth. They were bigger than, I try to tell my kids, they were bigger than 100 Super Bowls. You know, Ali Frazier and Madison Square Garden, first fight in particular, and then the Rumble in the Jungle, 1974, these were worldwide massive events. Everybody, everywhere knew about them, whether you liked sports, whether you liked boxing. This was, these were the biggest spectacles. And Ali, by the 70s, by the time I was old enough to appreciate him, had really moved out of his radical Muslim phase and had become a superhero. He even had like a Saturday morning cartoon show. So for a little white guy like me in the suburbs, a kid, um, he was absolutely one of my biggest heroes. I had his poster on my wall. Uh, so when you think, when, when it occurred to me that I might write his biography, it seemed ridiculous. Like, why should I get the chance to do that? But I did. You know, the, the last real, the last memory I, that I have of him was, um, it was the Olympic torch lighting. And I, I don't even remember the year because it was quite a long time ago now, but um, that's the last time I remember seeing him in, in public. And I, I, I'm too young to, to have really appreciated him, you know, as, as a boxer in his day, you know, of course my, my stepdad was big into sports and so I, I knew who he was. Um, but I remember seeing him at, at that time and thinking, wow, he's, he looks a lot different than those old videos that I've seen, you know, than those old pictures. Um, and, and of course, I guess that that's what time does to all of us, but, um, you know, you know, it, it definitely, it was eye-opening to, you know, see this man that, you know, my stepdad would also, he was, he was the greatest ever. And just to see him as this, this older person that was, you know, clearly, clearly struggling. Um, you know, was it, was it difficult for you when you, when you finally got to meet him, um, to see him as a, as an older man? Yeah, it was really hard. It was painful. But um, that moment that you talked about, it was 1996 in Atlanta. It was really a, a pivotal one for him because you know, when he quit boxing, he was, he was broke. Um, he didn't do well saving his money. And then in the 80s um, and even into the early 90s, he was kind of forgotten. And people um, don't remember this, but he, you know, he had trouble getting endorsements. He didn't like the way he looked on TV. He really was lonely and, and depressed at times. And, you know, he would get an occasional gig, you know, he'd, he asked to sit at a convention booth and sign autographs. And they'd pay him for an hour or two and he'd stay all day because he, he, he loved the company, he loved the attention. But it was, it was a sad time for him. And, and because he had Parkinson's, he wasn't able to speak clearly and he wasn't able to do his thing. He was such a brilliant entertainer and such a charismatic, colorful, you know, hilarious guy, but he'd lost the ability to, to spark that, uh, 
the sparkle of those crowds. And when he was called upon to light the Olympic torch, people were shocked. They hadn't seen him in so long. And here he was, you know, shaking. He could barely get the torch lit. It looked like he was going to maybe set himself on fire. And um, people fell in love with him again because he showed his vulnerability. And that was so important. Ali even said the next day, people are going to love me more now because they see I'm human. Because we all get old and we all get sick and we all die. And if, if I can do it, they can do it too. And he was right. You know, we embraced him in a, in a new way after that. And people just... When, you know, this is a man who was the most hated man in America in the 60s. He becomes the most popular man in the world, probably the most famous man on the planet in the 70s. And then by the 90s, he has this final act where he becomes kind of like a, like a saint, where he's all things to all people. And because he's not talking, we can all imagine that you know, Ali is somehow, we feel this connection with him that is almost universal at that point. It's really miraculous. Well, I think that that's for for me. That was kind of like the, that final step in in legend status. There is, you know, that's because that's you know for me, you know, and I'm I'm 40 years old. That's the thing that that I will remember now. Um, you know, is is seeing him up up there at the top of those stairs. But uh, yeah, I, I I got a little off track there. <laughs> I apologize, but that's uh, okay. I get carried away sometimes talking about Ali. <laughs> Well, you spent a lot of your life on it. Um, you, you, you were talking before, and it, it's something I want to kind of come back around to. And this is for, for all the, the authors out there that, that might be listening or, or watching. Um, because this show, you know, we have a lot of author friends. And you, you had talked about writing the book, writing Ali, and then having his input and, and how that can be a dangerous thing or, or something that could make you a little bit nervous. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting thing that you said, because you, you, you started out in, as a journalist and, you know, I've, I've, I, I was a journalist for a little while, only for very small magazines. And I didn't, I didn't get any big fun stories. It was mostly store openings and things like that. Um, but you know, you're, you're out there to tell the truth objectively. Um, from what I understand. And so when you when you set out to write this book about someone who you said was a hero of yours, are you able to to still do that objectively? You know, take those facts, even if it's something that you don't necessarily like and say, okay, well, this is still part of the story. It's still going in there. Or, or is that something that's more of a struggle? That's a really great question. And it's a tricky question because <laughs> biography by definition, by, by nature, is a, is, an, is a failure. Every biography is a failure. You cannot accurately tell a person's life story. Even if I were trying to tell my story, it would be full of lies. It would be full of mistaken memories. My, my people who know me best, my, my, my brothers, my wife, would say that I got things wrong, right? And if I were to attempt to tell my wife's story or my brother's story, I would get things wrong. It's impossible to write an, a completely true biography. So you have to accept the fact that you're doing something that is going to fail. And you have to try to fail as little as possible. And that's how I view it. And if I work my tail off, if I interview 600 people, if I find the people who knew Ali best and learn as much as I can about what they think happened, I will reduce the amount by which I'm failing. But I can't completely, I, I wasn't there. I wasn't there for everything. I wasn't in the room for every conversation. And even if I had been in the room for every conversation, I wouldn't know what the characters were thinking. So you, you have to 
somehow accept the fact that you're going to fail miserably at this task and do the best you can so that you are trying to help your reader understand just as you're trying to understand what comes close to the truth. And I think if you're honest about that, if you're honest about your limitations and you, and you can convey that to the reader, I'm doing my best to give you the accurate picture. Trust me, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you what I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what they were thinking. Um, I, and if there's conflicting evidence, if one wife says this happened and the other wife says that happened, I'm going to tell you what both of them said and let the reader, you know, respect the reader's intelligence and hope that they, that they stay with you on that, on that journey. Because that's what it is. It's, it's a journey. You're searching for the truth in someone's life. Um, but you know you're never really going to find it. You just have to, and the journey is all you get, basically. Well, I, I really like that idea. And I, I think that's something that could probably be applied to, to fiction as well. You know, if you're, if you're writing a character or sharing a, a story with someone to try to share it as, as honestly as you possibly can, knowing that, you know, it, it's going to be a, a flawed picture and they are going to see it through the lens that is you, the author, you know, <laughs> even if I'm, if I'm taking in facts, it's going to, it's going to get spat back out with my own, uh, you know, my own issues, <laughs> you know, put into it. So I, I like that. Um, you know, you, you, you said that in the 60s, oh, I keep going back to Ali, because it is, it is really fascinating. Um, it really is. Uh, so guys, you're all just going to have to listen, listen about Ali for quite a while here. Um, you said that in the, in the 60s, he was one of the most hated men in America. Now, this, this, is, this could be many, many chapters here, but could, could, you, uh, could you try to maybe kind of briefly tell us why that was? Yeah, you know, at first he was mildly hated because he was considered unsportsmanlike. He predicted the rounds in which he was going to defeat his opponents, and he, he mocked his opponents. And white sports writers did, in particular didn't like that. They didn't think a black kid should be talking that way, should be showing so much arrogance. Then when he became a member of the Nation of Islam, oh, then they really got angry because now he was saying that integration was a waste of time. Martin Luther King was wasting his time white people were never going to give black people a fair chance in this country. The only way forward was to escape, was to, was to ignore white society and form our own communities, form our own economies. And we cannot trust white America to give us anything. We have to take what we need and what we want. And once he did that, he became public enemy. And yeah. look at what's happening in our world today. Yeah, Ali was right in many ways, right? I was going to say, our schools are more segregated now than they were in the 60s. And our prisons are filled, you know, in, dis, dis, you know, in massive disproportion by African-Americans. So Ali had a point, um, but people didn't like that point. And um, that's why when he refused to box, um, when he refused to fight in Vietnam, he was, you know, banned from boxing and stripped of his title. Um, wasn't just because he was a convicted felon when, because there were plenty of convicted felons in boxing. You take the convicted felons out of boxing, you got nothing left. Um, it was because they didn't like his attitude. So, you know, that was, yeah, I, that was great. And at the time, there were no African-American sports writers to stand up for Ali. There were very few. Um, Ali was destroyed for that. I, I feel like, and, and you already kind of touched on this, but I, but a lot of people even today, 
don't like that attitude. Don't like the attitude of, of you know, we should be equal. We should be able to have what's what's ours. And I think that a big part of the hate that that he received was because he was black, you know, because the white people that wanted to watch boxing also felt like the black boxer should be put in his place and that's where he should stay. And we still hear that today, shut up and dribble, yeah. Colin Kaepernick, yes. you know, yep. we still have people who are uncomfortable with African-American athletes speaking out on politics, that they should just stick to their, to their game, shut up and dribble. And yeah. that's what Ali fought against. That's what he stood up for was the right to, to use his position as a famous man to fight for what he believed in. And that shouldn't be controversial at all. That's what America's all about. It is, it's exactly what we're all about. And I think that, you know, if you're a person that has a voice, regardless of what your views are, um, that you should be able to, to share those and, and help to educate people with those. And um, yeah, so I, I'm sorry, Abby, I know we said we, said we weren't gonna get too, too into politics. We're up here, it's we, good. We, we, we certainly won't, but I'll tell you what, to, to me, human rights is, is not politics. Uh, in any way, it's it's just about being a decent person. Um, yeah. All right. So moving on. <laughs> uh, this is this is kind of a, a personal question for me um, because because I don't write nonfiction. I, I am genuinely curious about this. Um, first of all, do you believe there is a a writing muse of any kind, something like that, something something that gives you inspiration? Yeah, I, I can show you what it is. It's the it's the notebook. Uh -oh. um, I don't ever have to worry about um, writer's block because I've got you know, hundreds and hundreds of these notebooks filled with my research and with my interviews. And as long as I have, can research, I'm never gonna run out of things to write. You know, I might get stuck that a paragraph isn't quite coming out the way I want it to, but then you just you know move on to the next one and come back to it. Um, but I'm writing facts, so I don't feel like I need to be visited by the muse. Um, and that, that's always been the great advantage of being, having been a newspaper reporter. You know, you go out with your notebook, you write down what people say, you come back and write it up in the best way you can. You try to make it as, as well written as you can, and you try to choose the, the, the right words, and make your sentences tight, and give good detail. But ultimately, if you don't fill your notebook with good stuff, you're not going to have anything good to write. And it's the same way for me now. I feel like as long as I can report and do good interviews and, and find new details, um, the writing will mostly take care of itself. And um, it, it also helps you to avoid getting mental about it. That you just say, it's not really writing, it's just reporting. And uh, you approach it with kind of a you know workman-like um, attitude, I think. That helps me a lot. Okay, all right. Sorry, fiction authors, that's, that's not gonna work for you. It's a little different. I've tried, I've, 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 I've taken some stabs at fiction and I have a children's book um, coming out in the fall, which is fiction and I do get to make stuff up. And, uh, well, and it's, tell it's us about, fun. Tell us about it. Um, so this book um, came about right after I finished Ali, I realized I had nothing to do that day. Like it was Monday morning, I had turned the book in, I was waiting for my editor to read it and well, maybe I'll try writing a children's book for my daughter and I'll just try writing a chapter for her so that when she comes home from school, I can, I can read something to her. And, uh, we had had a conversation that morning when I was making pigtails for her. She you know, was going through a phase where she wanted me to make pigtails and we were reading Charlotte's Web at the time. And, you know, there's that, the, very, the very first web that Charlotte spins says some pig. Mm. And I thought, hey, these are some pigtails. It was a bad joke, you know. Um, but I thought that would make a good title for a book, Some Pigtails. 
and well, that's uh, just, a dad joke. <laughs> I, it's a dad joke, yeah. And, and I am a big fan of dad jokes. I, I don't think we should apologize for dad jokes. I think we're trying to find a connection with our kids. Kids are not as sophisticated as we are, and dads have this capacity to go unsophisticated. That's one of our strengths. We got to embrace that. And um, so I started writing a, a silly little book uh, about a girl who wears these crazy pigtails, and the pigtails become so outrageous that. Cause distraction at school and they get banned and then the kid goes on the warpath to fight school dress code and to, and to fight for the right to have whatever pigtails she wants and I started writing one chapter at a time and after a couple of weeks I had you know a story that I thought was kind of fun and um, reading it to my daughter every every day when she came home from school and getting her suggestions for how to change it it was just a lot of fun so now I've written three of them and uh, all with the same character and uh, you know, it's 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 it, it's it's a really nice breath of fresh air from all the research. That's awesome. No, no. What's what is the the grade level? What do you consider this? Uh, I think it's like probably first through fifth grade. Okay, okay, very cool. No, that's exciting. It sounds like something that uh, my niece would actually would actually get into. That's fun. Oh, good. Oh, that's cool. So. Now, so you you you've done your children's books. You know, do you feel like they have been pretty well received? Well, nobody's read them yet except for my kids. Oh, nobody's read them yet? No, they come out in October. The first two come out in October. Oh, my and gosh. Okay. The third one comes out early, uh, I think, spring of 2022. So okay. who knows, you know? Uh, oh, maybe it'll right. be a whole well, thing. Cool. Uh, or maybe it'll flop and I'll just go back. But pretend it didn't happen. And I'll go back to writing my big, fat, boring books. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll definitely buy one. And then I'll tell you nice things about it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Well, so I, I'm hoping that I'll be able to get you to read a passage from one of your books today. Is that something you might um, be willing to do? Yeah, I guess do? I could do that. Uh, I hate <laughs> reading my books. Um, no. I, I really hate it because I always think they could have been better. And I'm, I'll, sometimes I'll stop in the middle of a sentence and go, oh, wrong word. Um, but no. No, if you make me do it, I will. You you don't have this is your choice. So, well, I I know people people like to hear the author read a little bit of their story. But if you if you want, we can totally skip that. No, I will. Um, <laughs> you pick whatever you want to read. Okay, we're see, we're good with. Here. Uh, other than some pigtails, I'm not sure if I have any of my books in, the, in the here. Oh. Um, it's very messy too. So um, I see a well, Jackie Robinson book over there. Oh, there we go. We haven't talked about Jackie yet, so maybe I'll get that book. Hang on. Oh, I found Ali's. Oh, fantastic. So I found Ali. Best book jacket of all my books. This is the best book jacket. No oh, words yeah. on there. I was a little, awesome. a little upset that I didn't get my name on the cover, but you're competing <laughs> with Ali, you know, it's, uh, it's tough, but I'm on the spine. Um, yeah. barely, very tiny, barely. very tiny on the spine, Missy. Yeah. yeah, they know what sells. It's not Jonathan Hyde, it's Ali that sells. Um, so, and uh, did you get did you get input on that cover or no? Um, they send them to you, and if you really don't like it, you can raise a fuss. But um, I've never raised a fuss. I think there was one book jacket, the Capone book jacket, that I made some suggestions on. Um, but usually, I trust their. The experts there. I'm not a design guy, so you have to yeah. okay. trust that they know what, what works. Okay, I'm just curious. We 
I, I talk to so many um, Indian small press authors that, and usually kind of the, the design is an integral part of it, and they're usually working with the designer. So it's it's fun every now and again to see how the, the bigger uh, the bigger publishing houses do it. So I'll, I just saw somebody posted this on this paragraph on Twitter the other day, and I said, oh, that's pretty good. I'm glad I wrote that. Um, so it, it didn't, it, I didn't hate it. So I'll, I'll read this paragraph. It's the last, it's the first paragraph of the last chapter of the book. And the chapter is called The Long Black Cadillac. Ali had no one left to fight. For most of his adult life, he'd been at war with his opponents in the ring, with reporters who tried to tell him how to behave, with American political and economic systems that relegated black Americans to the lowest social and economic stratum. Among boxers, Jack Johnson had taken the first good shot at American notions of white superiority. Joe Lewis had followed, striking blows for integration and acceptance. And Muhammad Ali, during a period of national turmoil, had jabbed and danced and lashed out, unworried about angering the white man, insisting America's glory had been built by the thrashing of black backs, the destruction of black families, and the smothering of black voices, and that black Americans would never truly be free until they whooped the whole rotten system. So, wow, seems fitting for today's news. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Just let that one sink in. Holy smokes! Oh. Yeah, I think you know somebody said to me, "Well, Ali wasn't really a, a, an anti-racist. He was he was racist because he opposed integration." And I argued with that. I said, "No, Ali was the ultimate anti-racist. He was calling out racism and fighting it on his own terms. And he didn't necessarily think integration was the way to fight it. But the whole reason he lived, everything he did, was about proving that." Black people were as good as white people. In some cases, he thought they were better, but he was absolutely trying to fight the system that has created second-class citizenship. That was his whole his whole fight, really. That and beating Joe Frazier. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you feel like uh, and and I know he's you know he's he's passed now, but do you feel like he would have been proud of this book? Do you think he would have approved? I don't know what he would have thought of the book. That's his, a hard one. <laughs> his, his family didn't really like it, so I don't know. Oh, no? Oh, no. I lost a few friends along the way. You know, I had a lot of people who um, I really got to know and love while working on this book, and then they read it and didn't really want to speak to me anymore. And that's, that's one of the problems in this job. Um, and it's the same tr when you're a newspaper or a magazine writer. You interview people and you get to know them and, and you build a kind of a trust. And then they don't always like the story when it's in there, when it's done, because they see themselves portrayed in this, you know, unemotional light. They see, they see other people commenting on them. Um, you know, it's hard for Ali's family to read what some of his critics had to say. Or, you know, if you were married to Ali and you were having to read about what one of his other wives has to say, that's, that's, that's tough. And I'm in the position of being the messenger for that, which doesn't always make me popular. It's part of the, I think it's just one of the costs of doing business and you have to have thick skin about it. Wow. I don't have thick skin. I, I, I like to. I, I was like just going to say, you, you got to have thick skin, right? <laughs> oh, I, I, I have shark skin. Yeah, I don't, but I like to, uh, I wish I did. <laughs> well, when you're, you know, I, I think it's obvious that the answer is, is yes, I'm, I'm sure. But when you're, when you're writing these biographies, you know, do you often come across things that kind of, 
make you question how you felt about the person you're, you're writing about. You know, maybe maybe something really disturbing or something amazing that's like, oh, wow, this, I feel a little bit differently about this person now. All the time um, with every one of these characters, except for Capone, where I started with a low opinion. <laughs> it actually went up a little bit along the way. <laughs> I liked him better by the end of the book. But you go through these cycles where you, you, you're in love with your subject and then you start to learn things that you're not crazy about. And then the, you go through a period where you think, no, this guy's not, how am I ever going to live with this? You know, he's just, I can't believe he did that. And then hopefully by the end, you come to terms with it and you understand that we're all flawed and we can't expect our heroes to be perfect. And, um, you know, Ali really tested me because the way he treated women was, was, was horrible. And uh, I was hearing it firsthand from, from his wives in some cases. And um, he talked about it at the end of his life that he had, really felt like he was going to go to hell if he didn't make up for the, the terrible way he treated women. So seeing it up close was, was hard for me because, you know, I wanted to, to, to come out loving the man and I wanted my readers to come out still admiring him, but you can't pull any punches, you know, no pun intended. You can't bury that stuff um, or else you're going to lose the trust of your readers. And it's better to be honest and, and, um, have some qualms about it than it is to, you know, cover for them and to try to smooth over their bad behavior. Okay. Well, and we, I don't think that we should necessarily judge a, a human being by their, by their worst moments, just like we, we can by only their best moments. Um, but I think by putting together, a, you know, a, a huge biography, like, like you did, you're giving people the opportunity to make up their own minds and, and to, learn everything they can about them. And I think that's all you can do, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And again, it goes back to respecting the intelligence of your readers. Um, if, you, if you lay it all out there and let them judge for themselves, some people are going to, and it's interesting because when you read the reviews, which of course I would never do on, on Amazon, yeah, don't book, do that. Uh, you'll see some people <laughs> who say that, um, that, this, that, that Ali emerges as an even greater hero. And then there are other readers who thought that I was just mean and, and out to make him look bad. So, you know, it's, it's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Well, and you received some, some accolades for, for Ali, didn't you? Yes, I did. Well, well toot your own horn, will you? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it won some nice awards, including the, uh, the Penn ESPN Award for Literary Fiction, and it won the Best Sports Book of the Year in, uh, in, in England in a contest uh, sponsored by the Times of London. Um, and it got a lot of nice reviews. Uh, Joyce Carol Oates reviewed it in the New York Times. That was a huge thrill for me because I love Joyce Carol Oates, and uh, she she had nice things to say about it. So I was I was really thrilled with the response to the book. Um, it's, it's it's always nerve wracking to know that your work's going to be criticized and that you're going to have a review of it, you know in the newspaper and and they can you know they can take your three or four years of work and just you know basically flush it down the toilet if they don't like it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Those got, journalists are, are vicious from what I hear. <laughs> yeah. The reviews for Ali were, were really terrific. I was really thrilled. That's awesome. Now, what was, what was your first book going from, you know, writing, writing articles to, to writing a longer form? My first book was the biography of Gehrig. Um, and okay. it came about, uh, I had thought about doing books before, but I didn't really know if I could do it, if I had the skills to do it. Um, but I thought it'd be fun to try and I've been doing newspaper and magazine work for a long time. So I was confident 
that I could write art, long articles even, and that maybe if I could write long articles, I could make the leap to books. And the, the big moment for me was reading Seabiscuit um, by Laura Hillenbrand. I just fell in love with that book and I could see why it was so much better than other sports books. And, and one of the things you learn to do as a writer is you know, deconstruct works that you admire. Now, you know, when I was a younger writer, I would, I would literally type other books just to see how it felt to type some of those words. I wouldn't type the whole book because that would take forever, but I would type paragraphs to, to get, try to get a better understanding for how the writer constructed that paragraph. And reading Seabiscuit, I absolutely tried to analyze what made it work, what made it so successful. And I began to figure, to think that some of the keys could be replicated. You know, she, she used newspaper clippings, she used box scores, she used old sports writers' notes to see what was going on at a public event and to, and to reconstruct those events. But, she, but the key was that it wasn't really about sports. She was using all of those horse races to tell a bigger story about the Great Depression. And I thought, if you could do the same thing with a baseball story, baseball's in the newspaper every day. If you pick a team like the Yankees in New York, there's six or eight reporters covering them every day. You could go back and read all that. And if you could use that detail to build a bigger story, you could copy the, the Laura Hillenbrand model for Seabiscuit. So I was basically just trying to steal Laura Hillenbrand's um, her, her techniques as much as possible. And it just occurred to me that Lou Gehrig was a great device for, for copying Seabiscuit. Um, not just because his nickname was the Iron Horse, but because he, his story was something that was about more than baseball. It was really one of Americans, America's great tragedies. It's a young man dying in his prime. You know, it's just a classic tragic story. And if you could use the baseball to show his life and his character, building up to the moment when he gets sick, and then you could show how he performs when he's sick but doesn't even know it yet. You could look in the newspapers and see how it's affecting his game. You'd have some, some details to really tell the story. And that was it. It was like, I just thought it was such a good idea that I had to try, even though I had never written a book before. Um, and I, I always tell writers, young writers, um, the key is do you give yourself permission to do it? Because I didn't need permission from anybody. I, I didn't need permission from Gehrig's family or from the Yankees. I just needed to say to, you know, to myself, you can do it, give it a try. And, and thank goodness I did, because it, you know, it was the best decision I ever made, at least in my professional life. Yeah, it's... <clears throat> All right, well, you clear your voice. I'm going to jump in here real quick. Um, oh, <laughs> believe it or not, we're actually getting some questions from our folks. I don't, I'm not sure if you guys can see them or not, but um, John, one of the other characters that you've written about extensively is Jackie Robinson, and Karen is wondering about um, his, the different impact that Jackie Robinson and Ali had on sports and culture. That's a good question. Um, you know, Jackie Robinson paves the way. Uh, and Martin Luther King said that Jackie Robinson was, um, was basically responsible for integrating America. Before, before there were marchers, before there were sit-ins, Jackie Robinson had to come first because um, Robinson integrated baseball in 1947. You know, Martin Luther King was, was, was still a teenager and um, still thinking about becoming a lawyer at that point. So think about how much, how early that is. And it's, um, 
Robinson comes along and proves that, that integration can work. He gets a chance, you know, the white power structure had to give him permission to play, right? They, they didn't give him, it wasn't like open competition. Some white guys had to decide that they wanted to give a black man a chance. But then when Robinson got that chance, he proved that he made the team better. He proved in the almost purest way possible that integration was good. Having diversity made teams better. And if he hadn't done that in 47, then I don't think you can have somebody like Ali who's able to you know, take a much bolder stance and to risk angering all of white society and stand up and say, I, I don't have to do what you tell me to do anymore. Robinson had to do what white owners of baseball told him to do. They told him, you know, you can't speak up, you can't speak out, you have to be well-mannered and well-behaved. He had to do that if he wanted the chance to play. So he sets the plate for someone like Ali who comes along later and says, no, new, ball, you know, new rules, I, I'm doing it my way. And I think that um, it's, it's amazing when you think about the fact that you know, Robinson is 15 years before Ali. Um, that's, that's a long time when you look at, at the arc of, of the civil rights movement. How do you think, uh, uh, oh boy. I was about to dive into some, oh, I'm just going to anyway. How do you think <laughs> things have, have progressed uh, since then when it comes to civil rights? Do we see a lot of improvements in your eyes? Since I, I'm, I'm looking at your eyes as more objective than mine maybe, even though we all have our own stuff. Um, do you feel like we've, we've come a long ways even since then, since Ali? Well, I don't know. I mean, like we were saying earlier, in some ways we haven't made much progress. We, our schools are, still segregated in, in many places and incarceration rates for African-Americans are way out of whack and income inequality is way out of whack. So, you know, Ali and, and Jackie Robinson would probably say that we haven't done enough. I think that's, I think it's fair to say that they'd be disappointed that, 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 that we haven't made much, as much progress since they got the ball rolling and as we should have. Okay. Well, and then your, your current work in progress is about uh, the good Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, that you're working on right now. And, uh, you know, another huge figure when it, when it comes to civil rights, um, probably the one that's most known throughout America. Um, what are you, because I, I only know what I've learned in school, which I know now as an adult is not nearly the whole story, is not nearly enough you know, are you, are you learning anything from, from writing this biography that, that's kind of changing the way you, you look at civil rights or the civil rights movement as, as it has evolved? Yeah, in a, in a huge way. And I think part of the problem with, with Dr. King is that when we turned him into a national holiday, we whitewashed him. You know, all we learn about in school now is I have a dream content of our character, we should be judged by the content of our, char content of our character. And the problem with that is that we, we don't really hear how radical he was and how brave he was and how challenging he was. You know, he was saying in the last few years of his life that we needed guaranteed income, guaranteed jobs, that income inequality was, was getting worse and worse. And it wasn't just for African-Americans, it was for the poor. And he wanted to really transform American society around around peace, around jobs, around income equality. And he was so radical um, and we've, we've, we've neutered him in that way. And, and I think part of the reason for this, that I wanna write this book is to remind people of what, what he was really about 
and to remind people that he was human. We, we, part of the problem that comes with turning these figures into icons is that we lose sight of who they really were and how they felt and what, it, what that struggle was really like for them. You know, he was a human being and he, he had a lot of, dip, lot of difficulty. He was depressed for, at times because he felt like it wasn't working, that it, American society wasn't, wasn't listening, wasn't buying into his message. And, and he was being isolated and, and um, relegated to the sidelines. And, you know, you need to see the whole life. You need to, you know, feel the man's um, joys and pains if you're going to really understand what he did. Um, so that's it's it's a big, scary project because you know, it's it's one of the I think maybe the greatest American story of them all. And to me, he's the greatest hero this country ever produced, um, and it's scary to try to tell that story but i'm gonna try it anyway it was scary but all these books are scary when you start them and then by the end um so what do you it's still it's still scary but at least it's <laughs> it, when, you, when you go when you when you're thinking to yourself yeah maybe i should write a book and then just pick the greatest figure you could possibly choose i mean what's going through your head is it is it the challenge or is it just because you you have you have uh, just so much devotion to the craft, or is it because you admire this person so much, or is it just a little bit of crazy all mixed in it's there? A lot of, I think it's a little bit of crazy. Uh, it's a lot of crazy because you, you ultimately ask yourself, I'm going to spend three or four years of my life on this, and I'm going to be talking about it for the rest of my life. So what's important enough that I want to do that? And I'm not going to make a lot of money. Book business is, is cratering. So forget about that. I'm certainly not choosing these based on which is going to sell the most or else I would be doing, I don't know, Kobe Bryant or something like that, right? Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm writing, I want to write about things that are, that are important, that are worthy of my time and that are worthy of my reader's attention. And what can I do to add to the discussion of these people's lives? I'm certainly not going to be the last book. It's not the first book on King, but it, feel, it felt like this was a moment when we needed to get back in touch with King. And if I could do that, if some publisher is willing to give me the chance to do that, I'll take it. I can't think of anything else that I could do that would be better use of my time and my research abilities. Um, so I'm gonna give it a try. <laughs> it's the same as I felt about Ali. Like, am I really gonna get away with this? Are they really gonna let me write this? Because this is exciting but it's also really scary. Uh, you know, do you remember at, at the start, before before we went on air, and I told you that I wasn't gonna ask you any hard questions, but I've got a, I've got a question for you. I'm, I'm so curious, and maybe it's an easy one for you. If you were, if you were gonna write a biography of, about right now, about this decade, about maybe 2020, you know, who, who was it, do you think? Who is it that, you would choose to write about? Who do you think is that one central figure that, that you'd like to tell their story? Oh man, I wouldn't want to tell the story, but I think they will, they will be writing books about Trump for oh, well, generations yeah. and generations <laughs> to come because he in many ways is the synthesis of everything that's happened in this country since the death of Martin Luther King, since the um, divisive era of politics that we began and maybe it began you know, I would say probably in the 70s or 80s, um, when you see the earliest signs of it, when we began dividing uh, culturally over issues like, you know, abortion and those things became politicized. Um, you know, it all 
climaxes with Trump, and, and, I, and I have to think that this is going to be a turning point for better or for worse. Um, I, but I wouldn't, you couldn't pay me a million dollars to, to, to write that right <laughs> well, now. I need to get that out it, in the worst possible way. Well, he, he is not going to be the hero in those books. Um, <laughs> well, some but people I, might be. Um, <laughs> but I will say this, I was having this discussion with my daughter the other day. If this catastrophe, and there's no other word for it, if this catastrophe leads us to reconsidering our political divisiveness, if it leads us to reconsider the impact of global warning, warming, if it leads us to reconsider this, the, the, the damage that racism has done to the society, and we begin to take these things more seriously, we might look back on the Trump administration as a turning point for the good. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna try you know, to stay optimistic about it. You're, you're not wrong. You know you're not wrong, but at the same time, for those that are living through it, it's like, Really, do we have to do this? I mean, I know. It's, so I'm just I'm praying that that a hero emerges, that um, that good things are going to come from this, that we're going to realize that uh, we we all have value, and that and really that's what it's all about. Uh, Abby, do we have more questions over there on your end? You're still there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sorry, mute button. Oh. <laughs> um, Heather it would like to know. Uh, which was your favorite book to write and why? Okay. Um, you know, Lou Gehrig is my favorite subject in many ways because I just fell in love with the man and I'm still in love with him and I have this massive crush and I just think he's the sweetest, kindest person and I, I hope I'm right about that. Um, you know, in Gary's case, I was really nervous that I didn't know him well enough to write this book because he was so shy. He didn't do a lot of interviews. He never wrote a memoir. You know, Babe Ruth, his teammate, would write a, a, a memoir every season because he needed the money. Um, Gary just never did. And I was really nervous that I, that I didn't know him well enough to, to, to put him between the covers of a book. And then I found 200 letters that he wrote, 200 pages of letters that he wrote as he was dying. And I, and I got to know him and I, and I loved him even more because he was so humble. And when he found out he was dying, he didn't think of himself. He started thinking, what can I do for other people? How can I make my death easier for my loved ones? And he's still just a phenomenal hero to me. Um, the Ali book was more fun to work on because I had all of these people around who I could interview who knew him and I could hang out with. I, went to, I took my kids to Don King's Christmas party, which you know, could be grounds for like, you know, having the state come take your children away from you. Um, but now that I got over it, and, you know, no, no harm befell them. I think it's okay to say that. Um, so I had more fun on the Ali book than any other book. Um, but but Gary remains probably my favorite guy that I've written about. I, it, it, he has an amazing, an amazing, amazing but tragic life, and it, it's a book that I would. <laughs> I will never pick up myself. Sorry, uh, Abby's also sending me messages, making me laugh here. Um, but um, I, I won't pick it up myself because my my own grandfather actually died of, of ALS, and oh, and even even now, when when I, I see movies where a character has ALS, it, I think it's it's too close to me still. You know, I think that there has to be more distance before I can before I can go to that place because it is it, it's just such a it's not a great way to go. It, yeah, it no, really it's the worst. Isn't. It's a terrible it, video, and I, and I will say the book will make you cry. Um, yeah. 
Well, I, if, if, if it doesn't, then you probably don't have a whole lot of a heart going on, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a devastating disease and, and, you know, and people definitely need to learn about it, but that's one of those where I started watching, um, it was the, um, the movie about Stephen, uh, Stephen Hawking, um, who had Eddie Redmayne did a phenomenal job. And I unfortunately started watching it. It was, it was only about a year after my grandfather passed and I, I turned it off after about halfway. I was like, you know what? I, I can't do this yet. You know, it, it's still right there. And, um, so, and those things are hard, you know, when, when you're writing or, or reading about, you know, real tragedy, real heartache. Yeah, I mean, with these characters, you know, as I was as I was writing those those chapters, I felt like I was living through it with Gehrig in a way, and it was it was heartbreaking. It's um, you know, you write these stories and you know how they end, um, yeah. but you you get so caught up in the lives of these people and you know, feel like you're you you you, you share something in the soul because you're you're whether they want you to or not, whether they trust you or not. You're, you're carrying their story forward for another generation of readers, and that's an awesome responsibility. If you don't feel some pain as they as they get old and die, then you're not doing it right, probably. Hmm. I like that. I like that idea. Well, we are we are getting to the end of our our time here. I, I feel like this is a a good time for maybe to plug some books or talk about something you've got coming up. Maybe a, a release that's happening in October. Or, um, I yeah, again, I have, I have a kids book coming out in October, and uh, two kids books coming out in October actually. Um, first two books in the series, and the King book. Oh, I also have a, a documentary uh, that I'm working with Ken Burns on. It's his documentary. I'm just a you know one little helper. Um, but I'm really excited wait, about wait, it. Wait, 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 what? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, Burns is, is doing the Muhammad Ali documentary. Um, and I've, I'm one of the producers and consultants on it. And uh, I've seen the first the first cut. It's so good. It'll be out, oh. I think, the fall of 21. And um, you guys are going to love it. And um, it's four parts, eight hours of Ali. And it's, it's spectacular. And... Um, the MLK book, I hope, will be out in 2022. Okay, that's awesome. Now, now the the documentary um, is that going to be like a Netflix original kind of thing that he's going to release it as? Do you know, or it'll be on PBS? So everybody, oh, PBS, oh, on regular old-fashioned television. Television, um, wow. <laughs> old-fashioned television, Channel 11 here in Chicago. Um, okay. Ken Burns' uh, stuff is always on PBS. I think. Okay. I, I love it. And and your books are available in all major bookstores, I, I would assume. Do you have a website as well? Yep, jonathanike.com. And like I said earlier, if you want signed copies, just send a note to the folks at Unabridged Books in Chicago, and we'll be happy to send send signed copies to anybody who wants one. Okay, awesome. I'm, I'm definitely going to be going over there, and that's unabridgedbookstore.com in Chicago. Should be able to get it set up pretty easy. Uh, well, this has been an, a great chat. I've, I've learned a lot, and I, I really had a, a good time talking with you, John. Thanks for Thanks. coming on and doing this. So, awesome. Do we have any more we'll questions before? Yes. Well, maybe, maybe this fall. I, I actually do have one more question, and this one. Oh, I lost you. You hit the mute button. Uh-oh. Can you hear me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can hear you. Okay, this this one's going to be a doozy. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing how um how you respond to this one. 
Bradley would like to know, John, how you would respond to someone who criticized your ability to write about Martin Luther King due to your race. Oh, wow. That's oh, so going out on a softball question. Good no, good I know, question. right? Boom, sorry. I just, I knew you were that one at you. the end there. In the high heat on that one. Um, no, it's a, it's a really important question, and we could go an hour or more talking about it. I think um, anybody should write about anything, and the challenge is can you write about it responsibly? Can you write about it with an open mind? Can you do your best to educate yourself, to take in perspectives that are not your own? But we would never, I would never want anybody to feel like they were limited in the story they could tell because of where they were born or how they were raised or what ethnic group they come from. I think everybody should be able to write what they want. And then the job is, you know, can you, can you do it well? And can you do it fairly? And I'm doing everything I can within my you know, powers to do this right, to have consulting um, support from people who um, have different backgrounds so that I'm getting a diversity of opinions and to just learn as much as I can so that I'm, I do the best job I can. And uh, like I said, I'm not the first one to write about King, I'm not the last, and I think everybody should, should have a chance to write about him and we should have as many books about him as possible by authors of as many different backgrounds. Does, does that satisfy you, Abby? <laughs> well, it well, satisfies me. I, I hope that uh, it satisfies Bradley as well. I, uh, I I was thinking of asking something similar, but I was like, you know, that that could be an entire show um, talking about that. And I think that there have been a lot of uh, shows talking just uh, about that, you know, authors that are writing outside of their, their race or their gender and how to be responsible and, and truthful and, uh, um, you know, authentic while not being disrespectful. So there, there are a lot of resources out there for authors or, or readers that are interested in that subject. But... But yeah, that would we would be here all night talking about that, I think. Uh, so, but I think it's uh, probably about time for us to to sign off. I, I want to thank again the, the Go Indie Now Network for supporting the show, Rebecca Jonesy for her support, the Herrick District Library who's making this whole thing happen, even if we're not there in the gorgeous Hazelby Hayes Auditorium, we're here on their Zoom platform. So thank you so much, Herrick District Library, and the lovely and talented Abby Stroop. Thank you, Abby. Take a bow. Yes. <laughs> and I'm bowing. Then, uh, you can't see me, but I'm doing it. You're bowing. <laughs> and then, uh, Mr. Jonathan Ike, thank you so much for coming on tonight. And Thanks for having me. It's really wonderful, and it's great that the library does these events. I, I only wish I could have joined you in person, but I'll, I'll try to get back there soon. And we open up. And, oh, and Tony. We can't forget Tony. Oh, Tony. thank you, Tony, for inviting me. Tony yes. my old Thank friend. Thank you, Tony. Uh, Tony the Amazing. <laughs> I miss you, Tony. Come back with your dogs to see me one of these days, okay? <laughs> All right, that's it, everybody. Stay safe and uh, stay strong. Thank you.